0: Turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul is beginning to lay out the unity that we share with one another in Christ Jesus. Lays out some profound truths describing the nature, describing who we are by nature in and of ourselves and who we are by the grace of God. Follow along with me as I read. And you were dead... towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing; it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, please send your spirit, the spirit of wisdom of illumination to open up our hearts, open up our minds and our souls to the truth of your word, that we might see our condition apart from you and see who we are in Christ and the work that you have prepared beforehand for us to do. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. In 1992 in Los Angeles County, a parking control officer came upon a brown Eldorado Cadillac parked next to the curb on street-sweeping day. So, he proceeded to write the ticket, dutifully pulled out his pad, wrote out the $30 citation, reached inside the open window, and placed the citation on the dashboard. The driver of the car made no excuses. There was no argument. There was no, uh, there was no argument. There was no hesitation from the driver of the car, and with good reason. It was because he had been shot in the head 10 to 12 hours beforehand and was now stiff as a board, sitting in the front seat, leaning slightly forward. But the parking control officer, being preoccupied with his ticket writing, wrote the ticket unaware of anything out of the ordinary. So he places the ticket on the front of the dashboard. He gets back in his car and drives away, not noticing anything odd. We come to this passage of Scripture, and I love the realism of the Bible. For this passage of Scripture, and indeed Scripture as a whole, tells us very plainly who we are by nature in and of ourselves, and who we are by the grace of God. And this passage makes abundantly clear that there are many people around us who are dead in transgressions and sin. And what should catch our attention most is not their offenses, but their need. For what they need most is not a citation, but a Savior. And so we turn to the Apostle Paul with his refreshing realism of who we are by nature, and who we are by the grace of God. And he doesn't hesitate to declare that apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead. Well, who is this that he's speaking about? Well, Paul begins the passage in verse 1, and he says, And you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But then Paul broadens it to include himself, among whom we all once lived following the evil in this world. And he continues to say, like the rest of mankind. So who Paul is addressing here is everybody. You, we, the rest of mankind, our spiritual condition apart from Jesus Christ. And he gives a very graphic description of our situation. He says, yes, that apart from Jesus Christ, we are dead. How more clear could he say this? And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, a factual statement of our spiritual condition outside of Jesus Christ. It says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses being crossing a known boundary, violating a divine commandment. Sin, meaning to miss the mark, to fall short of God's standard. But you take these two things together, trespasses, things we, intentional willful violations, and sins, areas where we missed the mark, it covers all of our offenses against God in thought, word, and deed. It covers the things that we should have done, but we omitted and did not do. It also covers the things and the sins that we committed, the things that were directly wrong. And so Paul, in this statement, is saying, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead because you were both a rebel against God, and you were a failure in the things that God had called you and had called all mankind to do. Here is the result. The result is, yes, we were dead and separated from God. Isaiah, several hundred years prior, declares, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities, that is your sins and your trespasses, Have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What's the situation? Because you are dead, you are separated from God apart from Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes that we have no life in ourselves apart from him. In Ephesians 4, describing mankind, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Separated from him. No life. Now, we hear this and we say, yeah, I mean, but really, I mean, dead's kind of like an absolute term. I mean, do we really mean like dead, like dead dead? I mean, we look around, people don't really look dead. In fact, people appear very, very much alive. You know, you look at the athlete who's got a, a sleek body, the painter who's not a Christian who makes beautiful artwork, the humanitarian or the very moral person who's not a Christian who may be more moral than some Christians that you know, um, the scholar who's got a very sharp and keen mind and insights into this world? Are they really dead? And then, you know, people who, you know, they pursue pursue spirituality. They say, well, I, I believe in God. I mean, really, are we to say that if they're not in Jesus Christ, that they are dead? Yes, indeed. Because where life matters the most... In our souls, they are dead and have no life apart from God. They are unable to come to God apart from a new birth by God's Spirit working within them. John Stott, who is nailing it in his commentary on Ephesians, says, Yes, they are dead, all of mankind apart from Jesus Christ, and you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ. They are deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God. No sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping of their spirit towards him in the cry, Abba Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to him as a corpse. And the tragedy of humanity is that people who are made in the image of God, made by God, made for God, are living life without God and apart from him. They are dead. And this is exactly where the great sage, Miracle Max, of the Princess Bride can really help us in our understanding. You might recall the situation is that Wesley, who was the dread pirate Roberts, had been, had the life sucked out of him at this point. His Spaniard um, adversary, now a friend, Inigo, uh, my name is Amigo Matoyas, um, and the giant Fezzik, now get the black masked man and he is, they think he is dead, so they bring him to Miracle Max in order for Miracle Max to do a miracle and bring him back to life. To which Miracle Max says, he's not dead dead, he's only mostly dead. And he's only mostly dead because there is a big difference between being mostly dead and all dead. Because mostly dead is slightly alive. And he continues that if he's all dead, the only thing left to do is to go through his pockets and look for change. But if he is slightly alive, then something could be done. Well, what is the scriptural truth? Are we mostly dead and slightly alive? No, it makes it very clear. You are dead, dead dead. Not partly dead, not mostly dead, all dead. For you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And what can a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man cannot desire God. A dead man cannot seek God, a dead man cannot respond to God, a dead man cannot please God, a dead man cannot serve God. He is dead and there is no life within him. But Paul describes our situation, if it wasn't bad enough that we are dead, he also gives some other stark descriptions. Not only are we dead, but also we are disobedient, in bondage to the forces that are beyond our control. How are we disobedient? We're disobedient because we follow the world, we follow the devil, and we follow the flesh. We are disobedient. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The course of this world, being the evil and darkness that's in it, when it references the world here, that's referring to a society that is organized without God and organized apart from God. A whole social value system that is alien to God. And left to ourselves, we follow the patterns of this world. And what is especially remarkable in American society is how ingrained we are in really believing that we're independent and really believing that we come to our own conclusions. I was listening to a friend of mine who is not a Christian, a very outspoken not non-Christian, and he was articulating his views of spirituality and Christianity and life and how the world world works. And he shares his views, and the 10 other non-Christians in the room, all of them completely agreed with him. Now isn't that remarkable? That you had ten people who all were completely convinced that they came to their own independent conclusions and they all believed the exact same things. You know what's happening? Is they're following the course of this world and don't even know it. John Stott, mind you, writing in 1979, gives a broader picture of what the spirit of this world following the course of this world looks like. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized, by political oppression or bureaucratic tyranny, by an outlook that is secular, that is repudiating God, amoral, repudiating absolutes or moral right and wrongs, or materialistic, glorifying the consumer market. Wherever human beings are being dehumanized by poverty, hunger, or unemployment, by racial discrimination. Or by any form of injustice, there we can detect the subhuman values of this age in this world, and their influence is pervasive. We are dead. We are disobedient because we follow the course of the world. But we also, more shockingly, follow the devil himself. Apart from Christ, you are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following... The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The power of this air being a reference that could also be translated following uh, the prince of this foggy darkness. It's referring to how the devil prefers darkness instead of light. Sons of disobedience referring to all mankind who are apart from God. And this point being is that all evil... All error, all violence, all rebellion against God can be traced back to the one who leads that rebellion against God, the devil himself. Not that he is controlling us. We are doing just fine in being rebels on our own. But rather, he set the course for what rebellion against God looks like and what self-centeredness looks like. So we follow the world. We follow the devil. And if that doesn't cover things, the issue is not only outside of us, but it is also within us, for we follow the flesh, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. Now to be clear, the flesh is, re- is the flesh is referring to our fallen, self-centered human nature. There is nothing wrong with natural bodily desires in and of themselves. When they become wrong, is when those natural God-given desires become over-desires. Those dire desires become inordinate desires. Desires of things that I must have in order for me to be happy. I must have, I feel that I need to have. What are some of them? Pride, intellectual arrogance, lust, theft, self-gratification, selfishness. And of course, all of these things take both very respectable forms that very respectable people practice, and also very disgraceful forms. But both of them, no matter how respectable or how disgraceful, are rooted in our ingrained self-centeredness from the desires of the body and mind that are focused on our own selfishness. And again, who is this? You, we, and all of mankind across from Jesus Christ. Finally, not only are we dead and are we disobedient, but we are also, therefore, doomed. It's a difficult phrase. Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now Let us remember and understand that the wrath of God is not like the wrath of man. It is not a bad temper. It is not whimsical it is not spiteful or revengeful. It is not arbitrary. God's wrath is not this, the result of the cause and the effect and the, the balance of the yin and the yang and the forces of evil and the forces of good. No. God's wrath is the divine reaction to only one thing, and that is evil. The divine God's wrath is God's utter refusal to compromise with evil. It is predictable, it is righteous, it is uncompromising, because it is his holy reaction to the evil that is present in this world. And even if you don't like this idea of God having wrath, I think you know the reaction in and of yourself, is that when you come across a significant injustice, or you hear of a loved one who has had a horrible thing done to them, or you listen to the news about Um, the atrocities that are committed against people across, across the world, and you hear that one of these horrific perpetrators has been caught, is there not a part of you that says, Man, I hope they get it. Man, I hope they nail that guy. There is a desire within you for justice to be done against evil. And the wrath of God is God's justice being poured out against one thing, and that is the evil that is present in this world. Now, sometimes people object to Christianity and they say, well, I can't believe in a God of wrath. I believe in a God of love. Let me submit to you that you cannot believe in a God of love unless you believe in a God of wrath. Because it is not loving to be indifferent to the evils that are present in this world. That if you are sitting with someone who is the victim of a horrific crime and they have been horrifically perpetrated and violated, it is unloving for you to sit by them and say, it's okay. It's okay. Everything will just be better. We just need to be loving. What that person needs is they need justice. And they need justice to be exacted on their behalf against the evil that is present within this world. Because it would be unloving to not pursue justice when there is horrific evil. How much more so the wrath of a holy and right and loving God against the evil that is present in this world. So it says that we are, that we are by nature children of wrath. So it's not just wrath against evil out there, but it's wrath against evil within ourselves. Children of wrath here referring to um, all of mankind again as another term for that. It says that we were by nature children of wrath. By nature, referencing that our inherited human nature deserves the wrath of God. That there is no part of us our mind, our emotions, our conscience, our will no part of us that is untainted or uncorrupted by sin. Each one of us needs to come to terms with this reality that apart from Christ, we are dead. We are dead, we are disobedient, we are doomed under the wrath of God. And to personally say, yes, this is me. And the hope of the gospel is that apart from Christ we are dead, but in Christ we are made alive. After this very real description of the human nature, about our about being dead, about being under the world, the flesh, and the devil, the things that we follow in our disobedience, about being doomed under the wrath of God, probably two of the most precious words of Scripture come in verse 4, where it says, but God, that we were dead, but God, that we were disobedient in so many ways, but God, that we were doomed to be objects of God's wrath, but God, and goes on to describe what he did. Now, the anti-gospel that runs through this world in the spirit of this age, that runs through every counterfeit religion, does not acknowledge this. Rather, the anti-gospel says this, but me, yes, when confronted with the brokenness of human existence and the frailty and the sinfulness of human existence and the atrocities of evil, the, it, it, the response is, but, 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 but I'm not so bad. But, but, but it's not my fault. But you don't know what type of home that I grew up in. But you don't know how bad my life has been. You don't know how hard I try to do these things. You don't know the good things that I've tried to do. But me. But the good news of Scripture is not but me, but God. And it is because of God's character that he acts. Four different words that describe God's saving motivation towards us, and I'm going to define these. But God, being rich in mercy, God's mercy is giving us, I'm sorry, God's mercy is not giving us what we do deserve. We were under God's wrath, but through God's mercy... We do not receive the wrath that we are due because God provided a substitute. We do not receive what we deserve to receive, namely God's wrath. The second motivator, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, out of the great love that he had, that he showed to us, We, who were under God's wrath, God decided that he would do something about it, not because of something found within us, but because of something found within him. Because of his great love, God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, who lives a perfect life, who does not deserve the wrath of God, but who takes the wrath of God, our punishment on the cross, and rises from the grave so that we could have the righteousness of Christ bestowed upon us. Why? Because out of the great love with which he loved us. Third term, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Grace is the the opposite side of the coin of mercy. If mercy is not giving us What we do deserve, grace is giving us what we do not deserve. We do not deserve to be made alive, but God made us alive together with Christ. We do not deserve the immeasurable riches of his grace, but God gives them to us even though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, rebels and failure, God, because of his grace, gives us What we do not deserve, he gives us life and makes us alive. Fourth motivator of God's character. By grace you have been saved, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What is his kindness? It is God's steadfastness that he would bestow upon us life eternal, life abundant. That he would begin to renew us, to heal the brokenness in our life now. That he would just put a spirit to dwell within us and to work within us. Why? Because of God's kindness. Because of things found in him, mercy, love, grace, kindness, found in him, not found in us. Well, what do those things do? Well, God's mercy, his love, his grace, his kindness, God's character moves him. ...to do God's work. Three different descriptions of what God's work is. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us... ...even when we were dead in our trespasses... ...one, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Two, he raised us up with him. And three, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus... What did God do? He gives us a new life. He turns the dead and he quickens the dead so that they become alive and have a love for God and a love for the things of God. He sits with Christ that there is a new victory. We have a power. We have been released from the power of sin and death. And there is a power. The power of sin and death has been broken. The punishment has been satisfied. And God has set us free to new life. Together with Christ, you have been raised with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Remarkable what God has done in Christ Jesus. We periodically recite the Apostles' Creed, along with churches throughout the ages and around the globe. And in the Apostles' Creed, we declare something like this. That Christ descended into hell, and on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Fantastic and remarkable truth about what God has done through Jesus Christ. But in this passage, when the Apostle Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the the technical term there is the session of Jesus Christ, where he is seated at the right hand of God. When Paul talks about these things, He is not writing about Jesus Christ. He is writing about us. And Paul's emphasis here is not that God quickened Jesus Christ from the dead and raised Jesus Christ from the dead and ascended into heaven and seated Christ Jesus at the right hand of God. Paul's emphasis is not on what happened in Jesus Christ. His emphasis is on us. And what has happened to us through Jesus Christ. And there is this astonishing mystery. That I have barely begun to understand myself. I barely begin to wrap my mind around this concept. It is that when Jesus Christ got up out of the tomb. Somehow. In some mysterious way. Walt Nielsen got up out of the tomb with him. And when he ascended into heaven. Somehow, Walt Nielsen ascended into heaven with him. And when he is seated at the right hand of God, somehow, Walt Nielsen is seated at the right hand of God. That's indeed what Paul says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus A profound truth that I barely begin to grasp and understand. But what I do know is that I was dead and now in Christ I am alive. In Christ we are made alive by the working of God. This all leads to why. That there is a purpose for why God saves us. For why God works his grace. And the purpose for why God saves us is to make us his workmanship. For through Christ, we are God's workmanship. In verses 8 through 10, Paul combines the preceding thoughts, summarizes them, and gives the the, the resultant work that follows. He tells us once again, if it wasn't clear before, that our salvation is a gift. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is a gift of God. Question, what is the it that is being referred to? Is the it salvation? Is the it grace? Is the it faith? And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The it is the whole thing. Salvation is a gift, grace is a gift, faith also is a gift, but it is a reference to the whole whole process. And because salvation is a gift of God, what this means is that you cannot earn it. If you earned it, it would be a paycheck, but it is a gift. If you deserved it, it would be a reward, but it is not a reward, it is a gift, If you could do anything to gain this, it would no longer be a gift. But salvation is a gift that God gives. And salvation is more than forgiveness, as remarkable as that truth is. For salvation also includes deliverance from death, deliverance from being dead, deliverance from disobedience and following the course of this world, the devil and the flesh. Deliverance includes deliverance from being doomed. All of these things are part of God's salvation. And the salvation that he offers to us as a gift is received by faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the humble trust where we receive it for ourselves. It is not a transaction where God provides the grace and we provide the payment of faith. No, rather, faith is the response that God works in us to the gift that he offers so that we would receive the gift and for it to begin to put work in our lives. And so if you're here this morning and you, you're investigating Christianity and you're trying to understand these things and what's necessary to have a relationship with God, if you understand the challenge of the own, the, your own futility and trying to live for God on your own and you try and just fail again, you fail again, you fail again. And you're listening to this and saying, okay, if I'm dead and I'm disobedient and I'm doomed, how do I respond? The answer is you put your faith in God. Because when the spirit works in a person, he works faith in that person so that the person would hear the word of God and be quickened by the word of God and turn and put their trust in Jesus Christ, that they would acknowledge and that you would acknowledge that apart from Christ, I am doomed. But my hope and confidence, my faith is in Jesus Christ and that in Christ, I am united to him, that my sins are forgiven and that I receive salvation because of him. Would today be the day that you do that? Would today be the day that you turn and put your faith in Christ? For others of us who have and have received the gift of salvation, there is a purpose for why you have it. And Paul is going to great lengths to clarify exactly what this purpose is. And before he describes it, he he makes sure that we know that the purpose that God has for you is nothing about you. Because your salvation precludes boasting. For by grace you have been saved through faith. How is it by? By grace. Whose doing is it? This is not your own doing. I don't know how the Bible could be more clear. This is not your own doing. It's God's doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. We will not strut around heaven like peacocks. Showing off our spiritual feathers. Boasting about the things that we did for God. Pride is incongruous with the gospel. Arrogance and pride and boasting in a Christian demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Arrogance demonstrates A fundamental, if it's not a misunderstanding, a misappropriation or a misapplication of the gospel in the life of a Christian. Because heaven will not be filled with our boasting about ourselves, but it will be filled with us boasting about Jesus Christ and giving praise to Jesus Christ because of we who were dead have been made alive. It's a gift. Salvation precludes boasting. But the reason why God saves us so that it, so that it will result in good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him, and that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship; that people should be able to see us and say, "That is a work of God." Not because of something remarkable in you, but because of something remarkable that God has done in you that is visible to other people. And the good deeds that God has prepared for us to do, the good works that we are called to do, they are not the root of our salvation. The good things that God calls Christians to do and how how he calls Christians to live is not the reason for their salvation. Good deeds and good works are not the root of salvation, rather they are the fruit of salvation. They are what should result in good works, in good deeds. Indeed, the Reformers 500 years ago would say that faith alone justifies, but the faith that justifies is never alone. And these good works that God has for you were prepared beforehand, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared things for you to do in advance. God has saved you for a purpose. He has saved you to do good deeds. That he has given you life. Because there are specific godly deeds for you to accomplish in your life that you would glorify God, that He would be seen and other people would be drawn to them. You were saved for a purpose that you should walk in the good deeds that God has for you to do. Created beforehand in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? is that, yes, you should rejoice in your salvation, but in rejoicing your salvation, you should realize that you are saved for a purpose, that you would live for Jesus Christ. For you are not your own, but you are bought with a price. And reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of the words of John Newton. The slave trader who became a Christian wrote the words to the song Amazing Grace, which we'll sing in a couple minutes. And reflecting on the work of God's grace in his life, he wrote... I am not what I ought to be. Ah, How imperfect and how deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil and I would cling cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet though I am not what I ought to be. And not what I hope to be, I can truly say that I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can hardly join with the apostle and acknowledge, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I wish to be. I'm not what I hope to be. I'm not what I will be, but thanks be to God that I am not what I used to be walk as children of grace. Let's pray. Father, apart from Christ, we are not a little dead, but we are dead dead. We are not mostly dead and slightly alive, but wholly dead. And not only dead, but disobedient, and not only disobedient, doomed, but God, because you are rich in mercy, because of the love with which you loved us beforehand, because of your grace and your immeasurable kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, Lord, you have made us alive in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Lord, may that truth not only encourage us, but motivate us to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us to do, that you would be glorified, that you would be honored. Father, there are some here today whom your spirit is working in and quickening their souls to new life. And Father, we pray that you would give them faith to turn and to believe. And to trust in you, to acknowledge their condition apart from you, and to trust in who we are through Jesus Christ, that you are the one that has made us alive. Father, for those that you have worked this new life in, may we live life not being concerned to issue citations to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. But may we live life so that the dead might come to know you and receive life eternal and life abundant through Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray, the one in whom we are united to in life, in death, in resurrection, and in ascension. Amen.